It's good to be with you this evening. I hope you've been resting on this Lord's Day and that you find rest in the Word of God, in prayer, in worship, in the songs, and you will find rest at the table here in a moment. Our sermon text this evening will come from the book of Revelation, chapter 7. And if you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Revelation 17 is the sermon text for the evening. Hear God's word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast, 
until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. In his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, the late Neil Postman compared two popular novels against each other. Orwell's 1984 and Huxley's Brave New World. Each novel depicts a different version of a dystopian world. Neil Postman observed, quote, What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distraction. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled, I'm sorry, in 1984, Postman added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. Well, anyone who has been paying attention to the world around them for any length of time will know that Orwell got it right for those who are living in the East, but Huxley got it right for those of us who are living in the West. What does this have to do with the book of Revelation and dragons and beasts and a great prostitute? Well, to put it in these terms, the dragon and the beasts are Orwellian. They are 1984. We have seen in Revelation 13, and going into 14, that they try to control the world by inflicting pain. But we heard just now in Revelation 17 that the great prostitute is Huxleyan. She tries to control the world by inflicting pleasure. And she is all about pleasure. We read a story like this, we read a vision like this, and we wonder, what do all of these details mean? Horns and crowns and heads and seas and a woman and beast. And we, we want to make sense of it all. It all seems so much to take in at one time. And so if you will permit me just at the outset to say, here's what most commentators believe about the woman 
and the hills and the beasts and the dragon and those kinds of things. They basically, basically argue that what Jesus revealed to John was a vision of Rome. That Rome was over all the world and the kings of the world and the governors of the world and the rulers of the world had committed adultery with her by getting into deals and cutting trade deals and swearing allegiance to her. She sat on seven hills. The temptation for the churches in Asia Minor at that time were also to cut deals with her, to compromise the faith. And that's all I'm going to say about that, with all those details, because there's something more important for us to deal with in this text. As I said to you a couple of weeks ago, it has been my experience in reading the book of Revelation with various Christians throughout the years that we are far more comfortable identifying the beast and the dragon and the whore with nations and religions of the past than we are with the present. We feel more comfortable thinking that was then, this is now. Too bad for them, they had to suffer all of that, but we're way past those things now. We're more sophisticated in our faith and religion. But I remind you that the book of Revelation gives us a theology of history. It is rarely either past or present. It is often both and. And so when we ask, who are the beast and what is the dragon and who is this prostitute? The answer is, they are antichrists. They are the world spirit. They are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Where do they show up? They show up in Rome. They show up in Jerusalem. They show up in Babylon and Constantinople. They show up in London. They show up in Washington, D.C. They show up in Dallas, Texas. They show up in your favorite nation and in your favorite denomination. They show up in your house and they show up in your heart. These are the enemies of Christ and His church. And they are waging war against us. And week after week, this vision, this revelation of Jesus Christ has attempted to remind us and to awaken us to this reality that we are engaged in spiritual warfare, often unawares. And yet this book is intended to awaken us, to make us see these realities. The vision of the great prostitute is a hard vision to, to see. It's hard to look at this. We see a woman sitting on seven hills. She is powerful and influential. She is Vanity Fair. In case you're familiar with, or maybe not familiar with, Pilgrim's Progress, I have an abridged version here to spare you the older English, but I would like for you to hear how Evangelist describes Vanity Fair. The town before you is Vanity Fair. It is a place that seems pleasant at first, like a picture that looks far better, far away than close up. But it is a place of murder and falseness of cruelty and deceit, 
a place where all manner of things are sold for profit, including men and women and children. It is a place of dreams turned to nightmares. There is no good in it. The two pilgrims making their way to the celestial city think we will pass around it at night, only, they, only to discover that the map leads directly through the city. An evangelist reminds them the very things that we've been trying to remind you of week after week. Whatever happens once you are in that town, remember the true owner of this place. Remember his love. Commit yourself to him. And away these pilgrims go into Vanity Fair. And once there, they discover what John has told us about the great prostitute and her city on seven hills. The things are not as they appear to be. The gold is simply painted on. The china is made of clay. Everything is fabricated. It's fake. It's an optical illusion. It is Las Vegas all over again, where everything is brighter and flashier than it ought to be because there's really nothing there to see. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in the city of man in Vanity Fair is intended to stay there, capture people and keep them and hold them hostage. And this is precisely what this great prostitute is trying to do to the people of God. Snare them, bring them in, hold them close, and not let them escape. In his book, Reverse Thunder, Eugene Peterson says, The great whore symbol of everyday experience is a very nice city to live in. The woman and the scarlet beast on which she sits comprise the streets we walk daily, the shops where we buy our vegetables while making small talk with the proprietor. As I reflected on that, I thought, well, let's go farther. Don't stop there. Let's add this. She is the world spirit of infotainment, the seductive power behind the false trinities of politics, religion, and sports, behind the false trinities of money, sex, and power. She is described here as the mother of all prostitutes. And depending on where you come from, that could either mean that she is the supreme whore or she is the source of all of the lesser whores. But either way, she is the evil force at work in the world. She is behind sex trafficking, which is running rampant throughout the world. She is the evil force behind internet pornography, which has affected every one of us and our families. She is the evil force behind sexting and sexual promiscuity and all the other sexual confusion, confusions that have arisen in our day. She is not faithful. She is opposed to anything that is faithful. She is against monogamy and one-man-woman marriages and faithfulness. And she is totally for and supporting and driving LGBTQ. In fact, she will set up safe zones for them and danger zones for us. She is drunk with the blood of saints. John says that she is drunk with the blood of saints, meaning the blood of the martyrs that she has slaughtered throughout her Pax Romana. In our day, we would say she is drunk with the blood of saints that she has slaughtered 
the countless unborn children slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. This is a bloodthirsty whore. Several years ago, I believe it was Smashing Pumpkins that had a song that said, the world is a vampire. <clears throat> and they almost got it right. If it is a vampire, it's a vampire that looks like the great prostitute. She is sent to drain the life out of the world, out of the inhabitants of the world. She is the seductive power behind the screen, the search engine who receives your wishes and answers your prayers with the click of a mouse. She promises to give you what you most desire in all the world. The churches in Asia Minor were tempted to commit adultery with the Roman Empire and thus Romanize the church. When we go back and look at those seven letters, we're going to hear Christ warn the church about abandoning their first love, about committing adultery and sexual immorality with false teachers, both religious and political. He will warn the churches about sleeping in the light and fading into darkness. Why? Because the dragon cannot get by inflicting pain everything he wants, and so he comes again to inflict pleasure. He finds various ways to get to us. Well, I would argue that the churches in the United States of America are tempted in many of the same ways as our brothers and sisters in Asia Minor were. We are tempted to commit adultery with America and thus Americanize the church. And it is safe to say that many churches and many professing Christians have already given in to this prostitute. They've already given over to her, given in to their temptations and consummated the relationship. Knowing you as I do, I'm sure that many of you are feeling quite squeamish at this point. It makes you nervous, doesn't it? But this is the tension. This is the point of tension that we must face. This is the crossroads at which we must stand. Too many of us have felt comfortable Americanizing the things that we should not have Americanized. In his generation, Richard Niebuhr explained liberal theology in this sentence. Notice he explained liberal theology in this way. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And in his generation, conservative Christians, conservative theologians said, Amen. And here we are a couple of generations later, and we might say the same can be said even of the more conservative Christians who have Americanized their faith to the point that it's become all about comfort and consumerism and commercializing the Christian faith. As Peterson says, the great danger that the world poses for us is not in its gross evils, but in its evil, its easy religion. The great danger that the world poses for us is not in its gross evils, but in its easy religion. The promise of success, ecstasy, and meaning that we can get for a price is whore worship. 
It is the diabolical inversion of you were bought with a price to I can get it for wholesale. We have heard the land beast say, make Babylon great again. Make Babylon great again. To which the church of Jesus Christ dare not say, Amen. While the beast and its followers are chanting, Make Babylon great again. It's in the midst of their chant, in the midst of that mantra, that an angel from heaven will come and say, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Do not hitch your wagon to a failing star. Do not try to hide your life behind the scarlet and purple robes of an old demonic whore. Revelation 17 says this calls for a mind with wisdom. Wisdom is greatly lacking in our day. Much easier, by the way, to live by law, live and die by law. People like the law, hard, fast rules that we know clearly the do's and don'ts, what we may or may not do. Wisdom is much more difficult to live by. Not because it's fuzzier, not because it's gray, but it requires more of us. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Where do we get wisdom? We get wisdom from God. And if we've been reading our scriptures and listening to the wisdom of God, then we will know that God has prepared us for dealing with this great prostitute in His scriptures. If you want to understand how to deal with the great prostitute by wisdom, you need to do nothing more than go back and read Proverbs and hear the wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs. And I urge you now with all your hearts to listen to these things, maybe for the first time or again for the first time, but listen and see the wisdom of God. As the King and the Lord gave us wisdom and described for us the wayward woman and how to deal with her, He said, she is loud, she is wayward, her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, oh, with much seductive speech she persuades him, and her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol. 
going down to the chambers of death. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. This calls for a mind with wisdom. How do we deal with the world, the flesh, the devil? How do we deal with the great prostitute with her seductive and sexy speech? How do we put up defense against the dark arts? It calls for a mind with wisdom. And this wisdom comes to us from Christ through His Word. And do you see the connections here? Do you see how one passage sheds light on another? John is talking to us about this great prostitute and how she has exerted herself and put herself out there for all to come in. She's inviting, wanting everyone to come and partake of her gifts, partake of her pleasures. She promises life and peace, but in the end she delivers war and death. Do not be taken in by these things. But I must tell you something, with all of this sexualized language, we might be tempted to think, oh, so this is just about pursuing sexual purity. It is about that. But it's about more than that. If you listen to the prophets, the prophets were constantly going to God's people and warning them about their unfaithfulness, about their spiritualized adultery, as they went to the idols and they went to the gods of the age and tried to make peace with the nations beyond the God of Israel. They tried to lean on broken staffs. They tried to cut treaties and make covenants with people who were enemies of God. And such friendship with the world is animosity towards God. You cannot be in a covenant union with the world and in a covenant union with God. You cannot eat at the table of demons and then come and eat at the table of Christ. So unlike our forefathers, as we heard in the Old Testament Scripture reading, unlike our forefathers, our foremothers, Samaria and Judah, who were known to be lewd women committing adultery with the gods around them, we are called to be faithful. And we are called to be faithful on pain of death. We're following the Lamb into the new creation. There is war being waged against the Lamb and His followers. And we are called to put up resistance. To deny our own cravings and lust and desires and pursue Christ. To say no to the great prostitute, but to say yes to the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And this is the tension we feel in our own hearts, in our own families, our communities, our church. This is the battle line. This is the battlefield. This is the theater of our war. 
summarize, the beast urges its followers to go into the whore and come. But the lamb calls his followers to come out of the whore and go. And those who heed the folly of the beast will live to regret it. But those who heed the wisdom of the lamb will live to rejoice. If you'll look down in Revelation 18, you will see the end of the prostitute. Not just her termination point, but the end goal of her life. You will see where she is headed. And you will see the response that God's people have. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." And then he calls us to this. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is the counsel that we receive from God through his messengers. To come out and to be separate, to make ourselves distinct as we wear the white robes of the Lamb dipped in the blood of Christ. We are not called to compromise and syncretize the Christian faith with the culture. We are not called to Americanize ourselves, nor to Mexicanize ourselves. We are called to imitate the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And I remind you that as we follow the Lamb into the new creation, it was Jesus who heeded the wisdom of His Father and stayed away from the prostitute's house, who was not seduced by her flashy eyes and seductive speech, who did not give Himself to her, nor His heart, His passions, affections, thoughts, desires. He blazed a trail for us out of Vanity Fair towards the celestial city. He is calling us to follow Him to the new heavens and the new earth. I pray that you will stop your ears to the cries and the speech of this woman. I pray that you will close your hearts to her and feel no passion or pity for her, but that your affections and desires will be turned to Christ alone. This is the message that we see here. In this great vision, this is the mystery unveiled. This is us seeing behind the makeup and the costumes of a demonic woman who would slay us in our sleep. And now that we know the truth, the truth will set us free. We're told here that they will make war on the Lamb. This woman seems invincible. Who could bring her down? Who could topple Rome? Who could demolish a city on seven hills? And the answer is, the Lamb will conquer them. And why? 
for he is King of kings and Lord of lords. As great and marvelous and powerful as she may seem, she is but nothing in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Oh God, we pray that you will grant us the grace to flee the trappings of Vanity Fair. That you will grant us the grace to flee and escape the hold that this world has on us. We acknowledge that we are drawn and allured by the things of earth. And our hope and prayer is that as we turn to look at Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, as we turn to follow Him into a new world, we pray that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I pray that for myself, but I pray that also for all those who are here this evening. For I know and what they know, and that is that the world has a powerful pull and draw on us. And we're so easily seduced, so easily lured and tricked. But I pray that you will grant us the grace to escape the traps of our enemy. Help us, O oh God, to say no to the lust of our eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of our life, to turn away from the devil, the flesh, and the world, and to pursue Jesus Christ, bearing our cross, wearing our robes, loving Him with all of our hearts. It's in His name we pray. Amen.